Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the, meat some, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Well, thank you, David, and good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here with us this morning. If we haven't met before, Carl is my name and I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Unley. As as Susan said, we're doing things slightly differently this morning. The, The reason behind that is I really want us to get into this narrative in 1 Samuel, and to enjoy the story for what the story is about. Uh, Because we're doing things a little bit differently today, we're not going to have a question time on the SMS line, so if you have a question that comes out of anything that I say today, or a little bit later on, we're having a panel of three people up here out of what they say, grab your leaflet that you got when you came in, or if you didn't, grab one off the table out there, and just jot your leaflet on your question on the communication slip, and pop it in the everything box, and I'll try my best to answer that for you in the course of the week. I'm going to pray for us as we start this morning. Father God, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would use it today to convict us, both of your majesty as a God who reigns and also our need for you. Amen. Well, for those of you who weren't here last week, we've just started to look at the book of 1 Samuel. It's a book that tells us about how the nation of Israel got a king. Last week we saw that the book of 1 Samuel picks up in the Bible storyline where judges left off. And we saw last week that this is not a good time in Israel's history. Judges ends by telling us that in that time there was no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And in the context of judges, what they saw fit to do was not a good thing. I wonder what you thought, though, of the story that David just read for us. Verse 12 tells us that Eli's two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, were scoundrels. As I've read this verse over the last few weeks, quite a few times, I've kind of smiled each time I got to that word, scoundrels. It's not a word that we use every day, is it? And as I'd been reading that word, I was kind of thinking that it's the sort of word that you might use to call a naughty toddler or a young boy. I'd been reading it kind of as the same way that we use the word rascal. But I've been using the word incorrectly in my mind. So the definition of a scoundrel is a person, especially a man who treats other people very badly and has no moral principles. Probably not what we want to call our toddlers. 
But it's a definition that fits perfectly with these two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. These two priests have no moral principles and their treatment of others is just detestable. Last week, you might remember that we looked at Hannah's great prayer in the first 10 or 11 verses of chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles open there, I'd encourage you just to flick back over a page and look through Hannah's prayer again. We looked at two things in the prayer last week. We looked at the state of Hannah's heart. We saw that she had a heart that rejoices in God. She delights in the deliverance that God has given her. You can see that in verse 1 of chapter 2. We also saw in Hannah's prayer the way in which the arrogant and the mighty, those with full stomachs and the wicked and those who oppose the Lord Most High, how they'll have their fortunes kind of tipped upside down. And here in the second part of chapter 2, we see Eli's two sons, the arrogant, the wicked, those with full stomachs, those who oppose the Lord Almighty. I don't think we would expect this as we're reading through this. I think we were expecting that Hannah's prayer was talking about her enemies, the Philistines. But instead we see it's not the enemies, the Philistines, but it's Israel's own priests who are like this. 1 Samuel tells us that by this stage in Israel's history, it was the practice of the priests to plunge a three-pronged fork into the cauldron containing boiling meat that was offered as part of the sacrifice. This was their regular practice of the day, it says. Now, just because it's the regular practice doesn't make it right. Back in Leviticus, we learn that the priests are given by God a share of the offering. They were given the breast and the right thigh. That was their share. The law made no stipulation for a priest to simply plunge a three-pronged fork into a cauldron. And the law made it perfectly clear that the fat belonged to God. It's apparently the best bit. But look what Hopney and Phineas are doing. They demand raw meat to roast before it's offered, fat and all. And when the people say no, well, they take it by force. These guys are thugs, aren't they? And look over at verse 22. They're also sleeping with the woman who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Remember the end of Book of Judges. That's the context of 1 Samuel. In those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And you might be sitting here this morning thinking, well, nothing's really changed, has it? As you read articles or as you listen to the news... There are, it seems, almost endless stories of the failure, of the moral failure, of the incompetence, and of the wickedness coming out of what has called itself the Christian church. And outside of the church, things don't necessarily look any better. Our leaders so often get it wrong. They're so often just plain scoundrels. We could spend... I think all morning together this morning, going through one example after another of how leaders have failed in our society. But I'm not really sure that that'll be very helpful for us this morning. 
Rather, what I want you to see is that there is hope that shines through these chapters. And hope, I think, that shines through many of us today. And in 1 Samuel, that hope comes through the mention of the boy Samuel and the way in which his faithfulness is contrasted with the wickedness of Hopney and Phineas. I'm very thankful to a commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, for pointing this out to me this week. And I want you to see here, while Eli's sons are called scoundrels in verse 12, in the verse just before, we read, Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. And then in verse 17, we read, the sins of Hopney and Phineas were very great in the Lord's sight. And then in verse 18, we read that Samuel ministered before the Lord. And while Hopney and Phineas, while they ignore the rebuke of their father in verse 25, just the next verse, we read that Samuel continues to grow in stature and favour with the Lord and the people in verse 26. See the contrast? It's happening quietly in the story. But the Lord is growing a leader for his people. He's raising up a man who, as it says in chapter 4, verse 1, will bring the word to the whole of Israel. The contrast is between Samuel, who's kind of Eli's adopted son, and Eli's other two sons, Hopni and Phinehas. And if you have a look with me at verses 17 to 21, there are no punches being pulled here. Hopni and Phinehas, their sins were very, very great. But at the same time, we have this delightful picture of Hannah visiting the boy Samuel each year, bringing him a new robe to wear. And we also see the fortunes start to flip up on their head. By the grace of God, Hannah bears more children, three sons and two daughters. We see Hannah's prayer beginning to be answered. She who was barren has borne many children. Last week, I asked the question as we got to the book of 1 Samuel, is God dead? Well, here we see God at work quietly behind the scenes with little Samuel growing in stature. God is at work. I think he's at work today as well. Today, as Mike showed us in the kids' talk, we know that God has spoken, it says in the book of Hebrews, that today he speaks through his Son. Today, we know what God requires of us. We know that he wants us to walk with him as disciples of Jesus. We know that he wants us to obey him and follow him and live for him. And rather than delve, I think, into the kind of terrible examples in the world that we could see of the failure of people rejecting God, not leading the way that he would like to, I thought it would be really great for us today to hear from three people how faith makes a difference in their lives. So I'm going to ask those three people to come up the front, Meredith and Chris and Jeff, if you want to come up. I've got some seats for you today. Now, you may not all know it, know Meredith and Chris and Jeff this morning, so just to start off with, I'd love you to just introduce yourselves to us, tell us a little bit about who you are, um, maybe a little bit about your family, um, just to give us an insight into what life looks like for each of you. Okay, I'm, I'm Meredith, I'm married to Carl, um, I hope that doesn't come as a surprise to him. Uh, <laughs> we, have, we have four children uh, who are all uh, in programs, being well cared for, and uh, during the week I am a paediatrician at Flinders Medical Centre 
uh, in the Department of Paediatrics there and in the Child Protection Service. Uh, my name's Chris Menz. I'm married to Tanya Menz, the uh, lovely lady just here, and I have uh, three uh, sometimes wonderful children, uh, <laughs> Joe, who's 11, and then Harry, who's nine, and Zara, who's four and a half. Oh, it's critical that you get that bit right. Uh, during the week, I suppose, um, I work for a property development and funds management business, um, and I'm one of the leaders there. Thank you, Chris. I'm Jeff. I'm uh, married to Judy, my childhood sweetheart. Um, we went to uh, Port Pirie High School together and we're in the same class together. Um, we have three great children, Chris, Ben and, and Kim. They're all here today. And of course our wonderful daughter-in-law, Heather, and the uh, three grandchildren that you all know. Um, <clears throat> my history and work life was very much about managing um, large groups of people. So when, um, when I first went to work as a 16-year-old, it was quite an interesting um, development phase that I had to go through to um, finish up working with, uh, you know, 1,200 people. Mm, great, great. Chris, I might start with you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how faith makes a difference for you in your life and how you make decisions, how you live your life, how you work and that sort of stuff? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, life includes lots of different categories and most often those categories all melt together into one big pot. Um, and... Um, so, so it's hard to separate them if you think in those terms. Definitely in, in our family um, life, um, for me, it's, and it's not that um, it's different for Tanya. Both of us are leaders in our household for our children. So the way we behave and what we do in our life decisions and the way we speak and act, and we're quite conscious of that. And um, I'd say most of the time, I've, you know, you feel like you don't get it right. But I think the power of Jesus is that... Um, you get a second chance over and over and over again with your kids and your marriage and your family life to be able to lead them in the right um, direction towards Christ and in the right way in which we love each other and um, go deeper in that. And then probably from a work perspective, um, I became a leader of a very large group of people in my 20s, um, about 26, which was a real shock to the system, frankly. And... uh, was the youngest leader of this sort of team in Australia and it became a real... And I sort of took it for granted at the time and then a couple of years into it, I sort of got this massive shock that I felt very unprepared. And I think what... Now that I look back and go, well, that was sort of uh, 13, 14 years ago, actually. Yeah, let's go with 13. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's stick me at 39 for the next month or two. Uh, is that... Um, what I have realised is that the only consistent thing that's held that together in those moments of massive stress and dealing with very large teams and all the issues and people issues and business issues and financial ones that come through that is that um, the way I act and the way I deal with these people like genuine people is um, instead of like employees in a job is is what's most important and like the last 12 months in particular was quite difficult as we had to make a number of people redundant and then push them others out of the business who weren't quite right for it and some were causing issues, frankly, as well. And it's quite hard to reconcile sitting across from somebody saying, I realise that you're a single parent and that you need this and having to work through that process with somebody. And I've done it many times before, but somehow the last 12 months I found it much harder. And I think that, you know, I, I started that process and I was the only one in the business who had to do it, sort of the hatchet man, if you like, if, is sort of how it felt. And Tanya actually was sort of saying through that, you've just got to, um, you've, you've got to go into this doing it the way that God would want you to do it. And I think 
for me that just meant being very genuine about how I felt about it with them as well when, when they saw that I actually cared for them personally in that and that it was a horrible situation. It made it a lot easier on them as well so they didn't feel like a number being chopped, frankly, but they felt like someone who was cared for and they were caught up in circumstance. And that's something that um, leaves you with a good relationship with them afterwards as well. And, and that's a real challenge because I think you could easily go in and try to keep your personal side out of business. And it's, I started that as a leader going, well, I'll just keep personal over here and I'll keep work over here because those who mix, you know, that just gets far too close. And what I realised is it's impossible and what Jesus calls us to do is actually to get personal with people and show care and love for them, um, which is a challenge. Great. Jeff, you got the microphone? Do you want oh, to explain how faith uh, makes a difference in your life? We were talking about this last night when we got home from Chris's Heather's place, and I said, I wish I had 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> but um, it is really important to understand that leaders, um, they get a lot of experience along the way that's not all that great. And it's through those not great experiences that they learn and they develop and then they can apply uh, that knowledge to any new situation that comes along. I remember being a young metallurgist in BHP in Wyala, and um, I was in charge of making steel, and we worked shift work, and I was only a bit like Chris. I was 22 and having to run this steel-making facility, and uh, the furnaces back then, they were fairly volatile pieces of equipment, and um, we always wanted to leave our shift in a pretty good state and the, and the equipment in a good state around about where we were working so the oncoming shift would say yes we cared and they you know we left it in a good state for them so anyways uh, this furnace was erupting violently just at the, the time when shift change was about to occur and uh, of course being the supervisor I wanted to make sure I was going to leave the factory in the right condition so I asked my furnaceman if he'd clean up behind the back of the furnace and there was slag and hot metal all over the back of this, this floor. And he told me in no uncertain terms, with very colourful language, that I was the son of um, a, a, uh, a woman who had no husband. And um, he let me know really where, where he felt that uh, I should go. And um, after that shift, I went home and had a bit of a think about that and wondered where it all went wrong. And of course, where it went wrong was, if I wasn't prepared to clean up, why should he be in that condition? So that started me thinking about, well, you know, if I'm not prepared to do something uh, and ask somebody else to do it, why should they? Which then brought me back into thinking about how leaders actually lead. I was fortunate enough to also have um, a, <coughs> a shift manager who um, wanted me to get to understand Jesus. Up until that time, of course, I was pretty much a, uh, not a scoundrel, but certainly a a larrikin um, who had plenty of self-confidence, prepared to tell everybody what I thought. And um, Jim took me aside and we just had Chris at the time. And he said, now, what are you going to do with him? Which brought me back into what's really important. And that's where uh, life changed for us. Thanks, Jeff. Um, I've been thinking about this week. One of, so one of the things I do during the week is work for the Child Protection Service. Um, so I uh, 
assess and care for children who have suspected or alleged um, abuse or neglect and um, clearly that's a difficult space to work in and I think I, when I'm doing it in my own um, strength I definitely oscillate between times where um, the problems seem too big um, and the issues in our systems and in our families and in our society feel too big for me to have to make any difference or to change the life trajectory of any of the children I see, um, which can be really, you know, really frustrating and I get really angry. And then I, and I oscillate between that and then going, oh, if I just work harder and do more and see them more and write more letters and do more, then, then that will make a difference and, and put it all on my own, own back and sort of oscillate between those two things. And I think the, the place where I see my faith um, changing me and enabling me and have not got this down pat yet, um, but is to realise that we have a God who loves and cares for his little ones far more than I can and knows what they've been through um, and yet you know, loves them and, and wants to bring them home and holds them safe in his arms. Um, and also just thinking about um, what we read in, about Hannah's story in Samuel last week about remembering that we also have a God who delights to take the empty and fill them and take the broken and mend them and take those that have nothing and give them everything. Um, and so I think thinking through that and trying to reconcile some of those things in my work hopefully is helping me to uh, remember that graciously God calls us to be part of his great mission here on earth but actually he's the, the loving father who does it all and who cares um, and so I try and work diligently in that but also remembering where, um, where the, the problems of the world rest with the God who has given everything to bring his little ones home. Hmm. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Um, let's thank these guys. Um, if you have ever asked the question, is God alive? I think very much today we can see God at live and at work in people's hearts as we hear those stories today. Um, as these guys make their way down, I'm going to pray for them. And then, give me that, Chris, that's all right. We'll just chuck that over here. Let me pray for these guys. Father God, we thank you for... Jeff and Chris and Meredith, thank you for the way in which you're at work in their lives. We thank you for their courage to share some of their stories with us this morning. We pray that you would continue to fill them with your spirit, that they would work for your glory in this world. Amen. Well, we're going to keep reading our story now, and David's going to come up and read the next part of 1 Samuel to us. Uh, we're reading from the start of chapter 3, if you want to open your Bibles to that page. Chapter 3, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son, Eli, said, I did not call, go back and lie down. 
Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realised that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son, Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord, let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognised that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word and Samuel's word came to all Israel. Thanks again, David. We've seen, haven't we already, a great contrast between the boy Samuel and Hopney and Phineas. I want us to see also this morning the justice and the grace of our God. And I want us to see also this morning the great love that our God has for us. That's where I'm going in this second little talk with you this morning. We didn't read uh, this verse together, but at the end of chapter 2, in verse 35, God says, speaking through that mysterious man who God sends to visit Eli, he says this, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. 
She wants to see that despite the corruption of the world, despite the terrible behaviour of many, God will triumph. Despite the wickedness of Eli's sons, God's plans can't be thwarted. This is how Dale Davis puts it. I've got it on the screen um, behind me. Thanks, Simon. Yahweh's kingdom and people may suffer from arrogant, immoral, unrepentant priests. But Yahweh will have a faithful priest. He insists on it. Yahweh has a sort of saving stubbornness that will not turn aside from profiting his people. I love that phrase, Yahweh has a sort of saving stubbornness. Because we all need that, don't we? A sort of saving stubbornness. I wonder if the faithful priest that uh, is being talked about here is Samuel. Certainly uh, Samuel fits within the context of the passage, doesn't it? But Samuel is kind of less a priest and more a prophet in this book. And yet he certainly is faithful and he certainly does do things according to the heart and mind of God. In chapter 3, that David just read, we see how it all begins for Samuel. And it's an amazing story, isn't it? In those days, when the word of the Lord is rare, God speaks out loud. He speaks audibly to the boy Samuel. And that's such great news for Israel in a time where the word of the Lord was rare. God's call to Samuel is an audible call, and yet at first Samuel doesn't recognize the voice. At first he thinks it must be Eli calling. And in verse 7 we read that that is because the word of the Lord had yet not been revealed to him. You see how patient God is with Samuel. And I think he's kind of kind, isn't he, in the way in which he deals with Samuel. He doesn't lash out at Samuel. Why didn't you hear me the first time I spoke? But he speaks again, gently, and gives Samuel time to work out who he is and what he wants. And Samuel listens. What he says to Samuel is pretty weighty stuff, isn't it? Come across the page with me to verse 11. It says this, And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. Another great phrase. What I'm about to say will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. And they are stern words that follow, aren't they? Stern and severe. They're words of judgment against Eli and his family. We're seeing the prayer of Hannah be answered. Inversion is being carried out. And this is what God tells Samuel, you can read along, starting in verse 12. At that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family, from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Prophets never really had an easy job, did they? And Samuel's really thrown in the deep end here. It's his first day on the job as a prophet. And he's got to go and tell his boss these words. Pretty difficult first day. Many of you know that uh, I worked in a glass factory when I was an engineer. Uh, I had raging furnaces, a bit like Jeff. 
I moved around the place in the factory as a graduate engineer. So I kind of had lots of first aids as I moved from one department to another within the factory. I remember my first day in the job on a, a job called the job change manager. And it was my job on the first day to change something they called the O-ring. Now, it won't make any sense to you, but I want you to imagine a furnace the size of this room full of glass, and the only thing holding that glass back is an O-ring, which is something about the size of a dinner plate with three holes in it, and my job was to change that with glass behind it at more than a 1,000 degrees. I want you to imagine a factory where the noise is just so loud and the energy is just so immense, you can't hear yourself think, really. And I was told, it's your job, go and change that thing up three flights of stairs. I went up there uh, with lots of people around me. There's noise and steam and smoke and grime and it's so noisy and so hot and so dirty. And I kind of knew what I had to do, but I'd never really experienced it before. I had this hook that I was supposed to hook up into this O-ring and pull it out. And I started to do it and I'm pulling on it and it starts to come away and I'm starting to celebrate, yes, I've done this. And then the thing drops off the end of my hook. I didn't realize how heavy it was and it fell to the bottom of the machine, never to be seen again. Terrible first day, really. Samuel's also thrown in the deep end on his first day in the job. And yet, as God's prophet, he is faithful. He delivers God's message of judgment to, our Eli, to Eli without dropping the ball, without dropping the O-ring. He does it faithfully. And it's a terrible message, isn't it? It's a message of judgment. But it shows the faithfulness of this man, Samuel, that he would not fail to hold back any of it. What I want you to notice today is the way in which Eli responds. Have a look at it there in verse 18. Eli says to Samuel, after Samuel's told him this judgment, He is the Lord, let him do what is good in his eyes. I wonder how you feel about Eli's response. He is the Lord, let him do what is good in his eyes. Because in a way, that makes sense, doesn't it? He's God, and he will do what he wants. But as I read this, I can't help but feel that Eli doesn't really know God very well. There's no pleading with God, just a simple recognition. He's God, he'll do what is good in his eyes. In 1 and 2 Samuel, King David is presented as the character or the person in the book who best knows God. We're told that he is a man after God's own heart. King David is far from sin-free as a person. He is an adulterer and a murderer. And yet he too, just like Eli, is confronted by a prophet about the sin in his life. I want to show you this. Come with me to 2 Samuel. So it's the next book over. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Verse 15, it's on page 485 of your Bibles. If you're unfamiliar with the story of David as we're turning there, we'll, we'll get to David in the coming weeks. We'll learn about what he's like as a boy. All you need to know for now is that David is held up in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel as a good king, although he acted terribly at one point in his life, truly terribly, and he's now being confronted for his sinfulness at this point. Let me read to you from verse 15. After Nathan, now that's the prophet in David's time, after Nathan had gone home, Nathan just pronounced God's judgment on David, 
the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David and he became ill. It's a judgment on David for his sin. Look how David responds. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. And David continues in this way until the child dies. Now come over to verse 21 with me. His attendants asked him, why are you acting in this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead, you get up and eat. And he answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. I can't help but notice the difference between Eli and David. The man of God in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel comes and pronounces a terrible judgment on Eli that his children would all die in the prime of their lives. Perhaps Eli doesn't believe the judgment that's been pronounced on his family. Maybe he thinks that if he ignores it, it will just go away. Or perhaps all that Eli knows about God is that he's God. But David seems to know of the graciousness of God and it motivates him to respond in repentance, physical and real repentance. Today, we know God with far greater clarity than either David or Eli were able to. Because in these last days where we live, God has spoken to us through Jesus. We know the Father better than both Eli and David because of Jesus. And so today, I want to remind you again of the graciousness of our God. I want to remind you that He is a God who will judge, but at the same time that He is a God of grace. Today we know that we're all like Eli and David to some extent. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. You could, to a perhaps lesser or greater extent, say that we all have some scoundrel in us at some point. And yet we're all loved, aren't we, by the grace of God. We are loved by a God of compassion. I ask you today, how do you respond to that? Do you respond with indifference? Or do you respond with repentance? Later this year, we're going to embark as a church on a series walking our way through the book of Romans. I want to take you there right now to a passage that shows us the kindness and grace of our God. It's from Romans chapter 5. You don't necessarily need to turn there. You may just like to listen to these words. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we read a book like 1 Samuel and we see the sinfulness of Israel, I think it should give us cause to sit back and examine our own hearts. Seeing the judgment of God on the house of Eli should, I think, give us cause to realise what is at stake in this world. This is life and death stuff that we're reading about here. God is a God of justice. He will have His justice. 
And while we know that today, I want us to also see the character of God. He speaks softly and gently to Samuel, calling him. Same God that abhors sinfulness, calls out gently. And so this morning, my question for you is, how do you respond to God? Do you respond like Eli? Today, I'd encourage you to respond with great thankfulness. Great thankfulness that in Jesus, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so justice has been served and God's love has been poured out. It's the God that I want you to know today. Let me pray for us that we would respond in a similar way. Father God, we give you great thanks for your work in this world through your Son. Father, we thank you that as we know you, and desire to walk in you, that you lead us, that you shape us, that you mould us. And Father, I pray that in the example we live, people would see you at work in the world. Father, we thank you that you're a God of justice, that you will make things right. We thank you also that you're a God of grace and mercy and that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. Amen.